Isaiah 50. If you would grab a Bible from someplace and uh, put it in front of you and find this text, I trust that the Word of God will be the means of God's grace in your life. Put it right in front of your eyes and in front of your hearts and your ears. You know, one of the amazing things about prophetic Scripture, the prophetic writings of the Scripture, is that it can speak to different audiences across time. Because the Lord is the God of all time, and it is of His ordaining that everything comes to pass. And so He can speak to the people of Isaiah's own day through a text like this. And of course, you know that the people... Uh, if you've been with us anyway, you know that the people of Isaiah's day were facing an imminent threat of extermination by the empire of ancient Assyria. They had already come or were about to come and destroy the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and they were right on the doorstep of the nation of Judah. In fact, during Isaiah's ministry, they would come begin to... Uh, encroach upon the Judeans as well. So it had a ministry in Isaiah's own day, but it also had a ministry to future generations of Judeans who would face the conquest by another empire of Babylon and an exile from the land of God taken away to a foreign country for 70 long years. They would languish there in exile. And this word had something for them But this word also looks ahead to the times of Christ, the end times, when all he would experience in this earthly life would be rejection and suffering and death at the hand of the Romans, another great empire that would come, along with, in fact, the very Judeans to whom these words were written, the the people of Judea. And of course, it has application that resounds throughout all of the generations to all of God's children as we face in our lives times when we are, by the providence of God, brought through prolonged suffering, when it seems like God is not answering prayers and all of his promises are going unfulfilled and our labors are in vain and God is hiding his face and he's left us alone, and everything's dark, there's no light, and we can't see where this path is going to lead. And when God's people are in a situation like that, maybe because of the darkness of the society around them, maybe because of the trials that they're facing, maybe because of the overwhelming enemy and the temptations that are in front of them, and it seems like God has abandoned them, God's forgotten about them, This passage has application for people in those kinds of situations as well. And so to the Lord's people, he gives a promise in times like that. Aren't the promises of God's word so precious to you? Haven't they become those things that you hold onto for your very life at times? And he gives to them a promise in the end of verse 13 of chapter 49. I'm just kind of setting up where we are here. The end of chapter 14 and verse 39, he says that the Lord will have compassion on his afflicted. They are afflicted. They're afflicted right now. But the day is coming when they will be looked upon with compassion by the Lord, when he will renew their strength. But when that time is long in coming, when the people are having to wait long in the darkness... For the light to finally dawn, there can be a real temptation to doubt God's goodness or his ability and to grow bitter at God in those times. And we have heard the testimony of more than one who has come into our midst and said, you know, I, God brought me through a deep, dark time where I was about to be lost in bitter unbelief and in the mercy of God he brought me through. These people, many of them, were tempted to grow embittered against God. And their testimony, you see, if you're in chapter 49 still, just look at what they say. Verse 14, Zion said, the Lord has, what? Forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. This is their testimony. 
They're doubting God's goodness, His faithful love, His steadfast love for His people. God has forgotten all about me. And then you see their attitude again down in verse 24. Here's their testimony, viewing themselves as prey for a powerful enemy. They say, can the prey be even taken out of the hand of the mighty? Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of the tyrant? Can they possibly be rescued? Not only are they doubting God's goodness and love and faithfulness to them, but they're doubting even his ability I mean, the enemy that we're facing is so mighty. There's no way we're ever going to get out of this situation. This is such a tyranny over us. Can anybody escape such a situation? This is the way that they were discouraged and the way that they manifested their doubts in God's goodness. Last week, we saw in chapter 49 that the Lord comes to them with answers, right? And what a blessing those were. The Lord speaks his answers answers to people who are in the midst of crisis and doubt and fears and lamenting their situation to God and the Lord is not deaf towards their pleas but he answers but I want to say that for many people those doubts become more than momentary lapses of faith They become, in fact, a habitual state of mind. And these people, the nation of Judah, eventually many of these people, became what you'd have to call incurably suspicious of God. Chronic doubters, really faithless in their view of God and who he was and what he could do and what he would do for them in answer to his promise. And they sunk down, or at least they were in danger at this point, of sinking down into a kind of sullen cynicism. There are people like that today. You say, you know, what has God ever done for me? I've tried to draw near to God sometimes, but it just always got beat down. It's never worked out for me. I wouldn't treat anybody the way God has treated me. How can God be good? I don't even know if he exists. They're in great danger of sinking down to a kind of settled, cynical unbelief because they're walking in darkness right now. And these people are tempted to be really just jaded and bitter mistrusting of God and, in, and his motives. That's where the people of Judah were, in danger of that. And some of them would eventually manifest that unbelief. Is there somebody, even in our, our building this morning, who's in danger in just that way, of sinking down into sullen bitterness against God because of what he's allowed in your life? This is the kind of attitude that God is dealing with here in this text. We've come to chapter 50. I want to just read this chapter for us and then I'll work our way through it here this morning. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Now verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, He awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear 
and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And then down in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire and equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. I, uh, I don't know if the, the direction of this text and the significance of this text in light of everything that we've been hearing is immediately apparent, but I hope that by the end of our working through this together, this text will become precious and will sustain you in a way that God intends for us this morning. I want to just show you sort of the way the text is structured because it really helps in this case. Sometimes structure is not as important, but in this case I think it particularly is helpful for really following along with what's, you know, with making sense of the, of the chapter. So there are really three parts to this, and these three parts are reflective of three different voices. Right? We're listening to three different voices, and the first is the voice of God, the Lord, Yahweh himself, verses 1 through 3. And you see that clearly in verse 1, right? It just starts out that way. Thus says the Lord. And I say it goes on to the end of verse 3. And if you have an ESV, you see after thus says the Lord, there's an opening quotation mark, and there's no closing quotation mark until you get to the end of verse 3. So the Lord is speaking in these three verses, and he is articulating who is at fault in this broken relationship that he has with his people. And then in verse 4, okay, there's a different voice. Take a look at verse 4. See if, uh, see if this is not the case. In verse 4, there's a different voice. The Lord, it starts this way. The Lord God has given me. So there's a me, and there's, he's reflecting on the Lord God. This is the voice of the servant of God, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, in verses 4 through 9. So verses 1 to 3, the voice of God, the voice of the Father, the voice of Yahweh, in verses 4 through 9, the voice of the servant of the Lord. He's not identified as the servant until verse 10, in the third section, but this is the voice of the servant. This is the third of what's called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There was Isaiah chapter 42, and then 49, and now here we have 50, and then again, probably the most famous and climactic one, chapters 52, the end of 52 into the end of 53. And so this is the third of these servant songs. And in this song, the servant is declaring a really stark contrast to the cynicism and the bitterness of the people of Israel. And then if you look down at verse 10, all right, follow with me the structure here, verses 1 to 3, the voice of the Lord, verses, five, uh, verses 4 to 9, the verse of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. And verse 10, you have a shift to another voice. So there's no more I and me like there was in verses 4 to 9. 
But now the servant of the Lord himself is spoken of in the third person. You see that in verse 10 and following? And so I'm going to call verses 10 and 11 the voice of appeal. Because the, the uh, author of the voice is not explicitly you know, spelled out here. Perhaps it's the voice of the prophet himself, but it's the voice of appeal because in this section we find the only imperatives, the only commands in the whole passage. So this really is where the application is, right, for us. We're now being appealed to and charged to respond in a certain way based on these voices that we've heard from God and from the servant of the Lord. That's verses 10 and 11. That's where the passage is going and I hope that'll, hope that'll help clarify. But let's listen, first of all, then, to the voice of the Lord himself, God, in verses 1 through 3. If you notice, right off in verse 1, the Lord begins with questions, right? Thus says the Lord. And then there are two questions. And these questions are couched in the imagery of two social situations. That of divorce and that of slavery. And the first question he poses this way, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? And the second question, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Now, some commentators assume that the answer to these questions is negative. That is, that um, in light of the previous chapter, where remember that God said, you know, I will... Uh, a, a good mother will sooner forsake her child than the fact that I will forsake you. And so the assumption is that the Lord is saying something like this, where is your certificate of divorce? Find it if you can because you don't have it because I haven't divorced you. And, and, the, and the second question, can you name anyone to whom I've sold you into slavery? No, you can't. You cannot point to anyone because I haven't done it. I haven't sold you into slavery. But I'm going to take exception to that, and, and I, I think that most of the explanations that I've read that take those questions that way really don't interact nearly enough with the second part of verse 1. So take a look at the second part. Behold, for iniquities you, what? You were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. So if the point of the Lord's asking these questions is not to contradict their assumptions, then what is the point of these questions? And there are two similar phrases in the second half of the verse. Take a look at the second half of verse 1. Two similar little phrases. Okay, They're similar in that they're both prepositional phrases. Two similar little phrases, and they both start with the word what? For, right. They both start with the word for, so they're giving the reason. They're giving a reason. You were sold, why? For your iniquities. You were sent away, why? Because of your transgressions. In other words, the issue here is who's at fault. Yeah, good. I was hoping somebody would say that. Who's at fault? It was in 1969 in the state of California that the first no-fault divorce laws were signed. Ronald Reagan later called it one of the biggest mistakes, mistakes of his political career. Uh, before that law was signed, and it was quickly followed by laws in most states um, along the same lines, but before that law was signed in the United States, you had to, if you were seeking a divorce, you had to declare fault in the divorce. Fault would typically be something like abandonment or adultery or something like that. You had to prove or at least um, you know, give reasonable evidence of that kind of fault on the party of one of those people in the marriage in order to obtain that divorce decree. The Lord would indeed send away Judah he would send them. He would go, say, get out of my house. He would send them out of his house. They were ex exiled from Jerusalem and from the temple. That divorce was not yet 
in Isaiah's day finalized, but already it was the case, or it was soon the case, with the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord says, of that northern kingdom, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. And he warns Judah, and he says, listen, you are on the same path if you don't turn around and repent. Look at your wayward sister. And so the issue really then is why has the Lord sold them into exile? Why has he sent them out of his house? Well, why could a man divorce his wife? For what reason? Well, that would actually become a pretty hot-button issue for later rabbis. And they would have long and heated discussions about what were the proper grounds or the allowable grounds for divorce. And the key text uh, in that argument is Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first few verses of that passage. And uh, there are regulations from Moses involving a man divorcing his wife for, there's that same preposition, for, quote, He's describing his chastening, and the temptation of these people is to become bitter and angry in the face of that chastening. And he's, he's intent on humbling them. Humility is what we need in these times when it seems like God has turned his back and he's not answering our prayers and my way is dark and I don't understand and what I need is a real sense of humility, a willingness to close my mouth and open my ears and learn, listen to God. I've found in some sad moments of church discipline that one of the greatest roadblocks is pride. And someone says, you know, I don't deserve this. Other people are just as bad as I am. This church has no love, no compassion. They just abandon people. And even when God personally disciplines someone, they echo these sentiments. God's not fair. I don't deserve this. God's abandoning me. What's he doing? Friends, why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone when it is laid on him. Let him sit alone in silence and put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope for that kind of person who humbles himself under the chastening of God. Everybody will respond, and you see this with your children, right? You go after them, and it's time for some chastening and correction. And maybe it's verbal, or maybe it's corporal, but you're going you're gonna to need to correct that. And, and they either will sort of melt under that and yield and give and acknowledge and humble themselves, or something in them will rise up and resist and put on a front and make excuses Right? And you always know as a good parent what will bring about the best result for that kid if he will humble himself in the face of that discipline. It's going to be so good for him later. So good. But in that moment, that old sinful human pride raises up its ugly head and says, God, this is not fair. Where are you? What are you doing? Which of us has not complained at some point under the chastening hand of God? Which of us has not been confounded at his dark providences? Especially, especially if there's a situation where we can't discern the immediate purpose for the chastening or discipline. Or we cannot get a handle. We can't really identify any specific cause for why it seems the Lord has abandoned us. 
The temptation is to complain and perhaps even to become bitter at the Lord. And what you and I need to hear then is the voice that begins in verse 3, the second voice, and that is the voice of the servant of the Lord. And this is such a stark contrast to the faithless voice of Judah. Instead of using his tongue to complain, look at verse 4, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. The Lord, rather than using his tongue in weary complaining against God, uses his tongue to sustain those who are weary under the chastening rod of God. What a Savior to not only hold up under apparent abandonment by God, trusting fully in his Father, but then to speak a word of encouragement to his brothers and his sisters who are going through the same thing. I mean, not the same thing by any, uh, to, to the degree, to the same degree, but walking that same path. And how many times, I think to myself, has God sustained me with a word? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Have you ever had just that word hold up your soul for a week? Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And you just kept saying that to God. The Lord knows how with a word to sustain. In the, I will raise him up at the last day. Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. I mean, all of these are words that the Lord has spoken into my heart that have literally sustained me. Hasn't the Lord done that for you? Amen, he has. Some of you can, some of you can give me some of those words right now, just in a, in a sentence, in a phrase, in a, in, a, in, a, in a verse from the Scripture that the Lord has literally used to sustain your spiritual life. This is the work of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah himself, coming to us every week, every time we open the Word, every time we hear it, through that Word coming to sustain us. And not only did Christ use his tongue... And it yielded his tongue to God as an instrument for righteousness, but his ears as well. Look at verse uh, 4. You remember that he said about Israel up in er, the earlier verses, Why, when I called out to you, was there no one to answer? But now the Messiah says, Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ears to hear as those who were taught. The Lord has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He had ears to hear the voice of his Father. And his hearing of the voice of the Lord, of the voice of the Father, actually became more attuned over time. That is, he grew in his understanding of the will of God by listening to the Father. Notice the way he says it here. This happened morning by morning by morning. I was taught by the Lord these things, right? Now, this is getting into a great mystery because Jesus, of course, is God himself. And yet, laid aside, in many cases, the independent exercise of some of those attributes during his time in the flesh and obeyed God as a man. And he learned from the Father by listening to his word through long study and prayer, Jesus was taught to hear God's voice and speak his words. Morning by morning, he spent time with the Lord. Evening by evening, he went out and read the scriptures and prayed. You know, how did Jesus spend... Remember in chapter 49, we saw that God hid him away until the time was right. How did he spend all of those 30 years before he was launched into public ministry by the Holy Spirit. 
He spent them morning by morning being taught by the Lord. Listening to God's word in prayer and relying on the Spirit, which is an amazing thing because those, listen to me, those are the exact same resources that are available to every single one of us. But where we have failed to fully give God our tongues and our ears, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would would yield the entirety of his body and all of its members as instruments to God. Notice in the next verses, instead of turning away from God like the people of Judah, he would do God's will. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or spitting. He's going to do the will of God with his entire body, his back and his cheeks and his face. Remember when he came into the world, the writer of Hebrews says, he came in saying, you did not ultimately desire, O Father, burnt offerings and sacrifices, but you have prepared for me to take on a body. And in this body, it's written of me in the scroll of the book, I will come and do your will. And he did. He did God's will with his tongue and with his ears and with his back and with his cheeks and with his face. With every part of his being, he willingly gave himself up to the will of his Father in heaven. And he learned obedience through those things that he suffered. Was there ever such a man like this? Was there ever such a servant of God? Now, how did Jesus delight to do the Father's will with all of his body, with all of his soul, even while it seemed like God completely abandoned him and all of his work was in vain? How did he persist in doing what God's will was even when he walked through the darkest night of his entire life in the garden of Gethsemane? How did he end up possibly saying, not my will, but yours be done? When it seemed that God was giving him up, was abandoning him, was sending him out, was exiling him. How did he deal with that? And the answer is he did it the same way that you and I are going to have to deal with the dark and bitter providences of God, and that is with utter trust and reliance on the word of God, the word of the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, even when we can't see our way forward. And that's what you see in verse 7. Look now at verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And why? How could he do this? Because he says, I know that I shall not be put to shame, and he who vindicates me is near. Now, when he died, it did not seem like God was vindicating him. It seemed like God was abandoning him. The Bible says we considered him to be stricken and smitten by God. God let it all happen. But he lived by faith that God would not abandon those who wait upon him. He said, I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And so he set his face like a flint. The Bible says this in Luke chapter 9. When the day came where it was time for him to go to Jerusalem to face all of the suffering and torment that he was going to face bodily and spiritually as he was tormented and beaten and tortured and finally crucified. When the day came that it was time to go to Jerusalem, the Bible says he set his face, just like this. You can picture that hardened expression of determination, right? He, this is God's will for me. I will do it. Nothing will deter me from going to Jerusalem. And of course, there were all kinds of things that could have turned his attention away. But he was absolutely determined. In the middle of verse 8, 
he poses three unshakable, un, excuse me, unanswerable questions in light of the help of God. Who will contend with me, he says. Let us stand up together. Or, who is my adversary? Let him come near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. The sovereign Lord helps me. And thirdly, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them, all of my accusers, will wear out like a garment. The moth will, uh, will eat them up. My accusers will, be, will pass away, but my God will help me. And it reminds me of all of those unanswerable questions at the end of Romans chapter 8, right? If God is for us, what? That's the way Jesus encouraged. That's literally the kinds of things that Jesus was saying to himself as he went to the cross. My God will vindicate me. He is near. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. God vindicates those who wait in faith for him. This is the way that Jesus went to the cross. This is the way, this is the fuel that enabled his obedience even to the point of death. Even when God seemed to completely turn his back on him, when he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died saying, into your hands I commit myself. Here is the true servant of the Lord. He did not harden his heart in pride and bitterness and unbelief, but was willing to be made low, to submit, to be humble under the chastening rod of God even when it didn't fully make sense, even though there was actually no fault in him whatsoever. This is why he's the example for us in this. Because in every one of us, when we face difficult times in our lives, every one of us can say, well, there's definitely sin in my life somewhere <laughs> that needs to be dealt with. And I may not be able to draw a straight line from this particular suffering to this particular sin, but I know I'm a sinner. But our Lord couldn't even say that, and yet submitted to the chastening rod of God. How did he do it? Because he entrusted himself completely to the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And let me quickly move through the application then for you and for I, for me. And that is the, in this final voice of appeal here. And this is the prophetic call to the people of God, the true people of God. You see the way it's addressed here. This voice of appeal, verse 10, who among you, so he's speaking to Judah, but he's speaking to a subset of Judah, right? He's speaking to a, a people within a people. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? The, the appeal is narrowed now from the whole nation who refused to hear when the Lord called to that remnant among them. And that remnant is described, first of all, as those people who feared the Lord. Those people who were not cynical and jaded and bitter against God, but truly in awe of Him. And secondly, they're described as people who obey the voice of His servant. They were devoted in following the Lord's Messiah. And so what does it mean to obey the voice of God's servant? What does it mean to obey the voice of Christ? Well, we just heard his voice in verses 4 to 9. And that voice was a testimony of absolute trust and faith in God, even when it seemed like God had abandoned him. So the voice of appeal is that you should fear God and follow the one who gave us that example. Verse 10, here's the way it comes. Here's the appeal. Here's the command. Here's the application of the whole text. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, let the one who's going through the darkest time of his life, let him do what? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God, just like the Savior. Has God put you in a position in a situation that you don't understand? Has he chosen a very difficult providence for you? And maybe you're wandering through it, and even today you're here, you came, and if, if you really could give voice to your thoughts and 
really honest with yourself, you're asking in your mind, why? Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Where is God in all of this? Has he forsaken me? Is he even out there? Listen, God brought you here today to hear his voice. And I pray that you will. He's calling to you even through this text. Maybe you feel like you have no light on your path to see any kind of resolution in the future. It just all looks dark. I mean, you look down the road right now and all you see is darkness going on and on and on. You don't see how this thing ever gets resolved. Friend, follow your Savior and trust and rely on God, even in the dark. That really is the thrust of this message. Trust in God in the dark. But of course, among Judah, there would be many who would be too cynical to trust God like that. And he ends this passage by addressing them. They're also going through God's dark providence, right? It wasn't just the remnant that got taken away into captivity and saw their city brought into ruins and saw families killed and all kinds of things. It, it, was, it was the whole nation. And so they're all going together through this dark providence, but they react very differently here now in verse 11. Look at this. Behold all who... All right, verse 10, he appealed verbally to all those who feared the Lord and obeyed his servant. Now here, he's calling to look. He's appealing to those who... Kindle a fire and equip yourselves with burning torches. In other words, here's people who are not content to trust God and walk one step in front of the other in the dark. They've got to see their way clear or they're not going to obey God. And if God leaves them in the dark, they're going to try to create their own light. You're going to try to get some artificial light. And, and people do that all the time when they're in really dark, difficult situations. And God isn't giving them any, any clear sense of how this is all going to resolve. They say, well, I'll take matters into my own hands then. Now, I'll look for light in another place. Whether it's faithless explanations that try to come in and make sense of their path and their situation whether it's worldly reliances that attempt to, uh, by which they attempt to sustain themselves, or whether it is godless advice to help them to sort of see their way clear in this situation. They're looking for other light. But the voice of appeal comes to them. Verse 11, he says to them, Go ahead, walk by the light of your fire, and by the torches that you have kindled, but this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it are the ways of the ways of death. And ultimately, this is where every worldly strategy and every faithless coping mechanism and every godless philosophy is going to lead you. Listen, do you have eyes to see that? Learn to trust God in the dark. When he leaves you in the dark, to rest on him and the truthfulness of his word and the unchangeableness of his character and the steadfastness of his covenant. Just learn to rely on that. When you cannot see, trust. When you say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Beware of the temptation to grow bitter and cynical and hard. But like your Savior friends, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he what? He cares for you. But you're going to have to believe that. You're going to have to rest in that care, even when he doesn't turn the light on for a long time. You're going to have to, he's going to say, now put your right foot forward, one foot, 
and you're going to have to put your right forward one foot and you can't see if there's anything that's going to hold you up. Just because he said so. Not because you can see, not because you see where the path is and where the steps are, but because he's guiding you and you're listening to his voice and you've got ears to hear and you've got a heart to receive and you're saying, okay, Lord, I'll put it all on the line. Either you're true or you're not. I'm banking on, on your faithfulness. I'm just going to trust you in the dark and I'm going to take a step. Maybe there's somebody who says, you know, I, I, I'm in a situation like that right now. I just feel like I'm in the dark, but I... I, I don't see how this is any chastening of God. I can't think of, I've thought about my life honestly, and I can't think of any sin that God might be chastening me for here. And I just say, you know, bless your heart, as they say in the South. You have so much to learn, for our whole lives are in need of the constant chastenings of the Lord. I mean, everything about us needs to be reshaped. I'm not talking about tying your specific problem to a specific sin every single time. I'm talking about being humble and open to God's chastening, sanctifying, growing, idol-crushing, teaching work in your life. Instead of shaking your fist and saying, where are you? I don't deserve this. Why are you letting this happen? Saying, I don't see, but I believe and so, I'm going to take the next right step, and I'm going to wait for you to vindicate those who wait on you. I want to close by reading a testimony. And I'm going to have to say right now, it's, it's a little bit lengthy. It's lengthy, longer than I, I would normally read, but I'll read this, and then we'll be done. And I hope it'll be... I hope it'll put flesh and blood in a sort of present-day way on, on what we've read here in this text. This, comes, I, I, this article was written in 2017 by John Bloom. He's uh, an author and a teacher and the co-founder of Desiring God Ministries. And he says this, For me, it's fitting that a solar eclipse occurred this week. 20 years ago, in the spring of 1997, I experienced an eclipse of God. And 20 years ago this week, light dawned in my darkness. I had been asking for it, though I didn't know I was asking for that. We often know what we want, but when we ask God for it, we usually don't know what we're asking for until we receive it. I was disturbed at the difference I saw between my experience of satisfaction in God and what I read in the Bible, specifically when I read how the Apostle Paul, in the, very face, in the face of very possible death, the earthly loss of all things, cried from his heart, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. I believe that truth abstractly, theoretically, but it wasn't really my heart cry. I was 31, married to my dearest friend on earth, and had a precious baby boy. I was leading a new and rapidly growing ministry alongside a mentor and friend I loved and esteemed highly. We were part of a growing, healthy, vibrant church that was reaching its local community and sending people to the far reaches of the globe with the gospel. My wife and I were involved with my brother and his wife in the gestational stage of what would become an inner-city, truly multicultural church plant reaching hard-to-reach and hardly-reached people. Life was mostly ministry and mostly wonderful. And that's what disturbed me, that my life could be mostly ministry and mostly wonderful to the point that gaining Christ Jesus my Lord through death did not feel surpassingly worthy to me. I knew I wasn't wrong to treasure God's gifts, but I also knew that as long as his steadfast love didn't taste better than life to me, my heart's affections were disordered and idolatrous. So I began to fast and pray that God would do whatever it took so that I would not turn his gifts into idols, that I would love him supremely. Due to his past dealings with me, I had learned to trust him. I believed he would only answer in the ways that were best for me. But I remember praying something that struck me odd even then, Lord, just don't let me lose my faith. And my God answered. 
The details are too complex to include here and not crucial to the point, but suffice it to say that one day that spring an eclipse of God occurred in the sky of my soul. If the eclipse had been a corona, I couldn't see it. I suddenly couldn't see God at all. I suddenly saw the world as if God didn't exist. This was a new experience for me. As a very young boy, I had an awareness of God's existence and experienced his intervention at certain remarkable points. I was born again somewhere around 10 or 11 when I first really understood the gospel invitation. I was earnest about my faith from the beginning. I didn't waver through my teen or early adult years as I grew in grace. I was engaged in active gospel ministry from high school on. I had numerous experiences that confirmed to me the New Testament reality of the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I battled doubts off and on, but they, were never, they never seriously shook my faith until that day. That day, I was seized with a grand doubt, and scales, rather than falling off, filled my heart eyes. God disappeared from my sight for the first time in my memory. It took no time for the void of God to produce in me the void of meaning, the vanity, emptiness, and striving after the wind that the preacher proclaimed. I understood as never before. Everything appeared hollow. Work appeared meaningless. Rest appeared meaningless. Leisure appeared meaningless. The cosmos appeared meaningless. Life appeared meaningless. The hopelessness of all the existential philosophers that they, dis- excuse me, the hopelessness all ex- existential philosophers describe uh, raged through me. I cannot capture in words the depths of despair I experienced. For months, I had a constant low-grade headache from the dissonance of conflicting beliefs in my head. I remember the terror of realizing that if I embraced this unbelief, the wonder of my wonderful wife and child would disappear. Whatever love I felt for them would seem as nothing more than genetic illusion to encourage and protect protect reproduction. The bleak darkness was horrible in in its truest sense. I did not wish to commit suicide, but I knew that I could not endure this darkness indefinitely. And whatever secret envy I had harbored for unbelievers who seemed free to pursue it, whatever sinful pleasures they wished, was gone. The bankruptcy of that deceitful fantasy was fully exposed. However, due to God's past dealings with me, I had learned to trust him. He had taught me in other ways to trust his promises over my perceptions. And so although God appeared absent to me, and at times I seemed a hair's breadth away from believing it, I didn't. The meaningless seemed at once compelling and untrue at the same time. I determined that God, not my thoughts, not my doubts, excuse me, deserved the benefit of my doubt. And I determined to do nothing, excuse me, I determined to do something that aircraft pilots must learn to do. Fly by the instruments. When a pilot flies into a dark cloud and loses his points of reference, it becomes a dangerous thing for him to trust his physical perceptions. He might feel like he's flying straight when he's actually descending toward the ground. He must learn to trust what the plane's instruments are telling him and not what his thoughts and feelings are telling him. His life depends on it. So I began to fly according to the instruments of God's word and not my perceptions of the world. I kept my habit of personal devotions, despite how Teflon-coated my soul seemed. I kept in church fellowship, and involved in our inner city ministry, I kept my hand to the vocational plow God had given me and sought to keep providing for my wife and my child. I held nothing secret from those closest to me and those who needed to know, and they were mercifully patient, kind, and surprisingly hopeful and encouraging to me, especially my saintly wife. And I remember my pastor telling me, the rock under your feet will not long feel like sand. I loved him for saying it, but I felt so 
it felt so unlikely, especially when the eclipse lingered week after week after weary week. And then the light dawned. It was Saturday, August 23rd, 1997. In the afternoon, my wife and child were running errands, and I was alone in the house. I threw myself on the living room floor and pleaded with God for light and deliverance. And then I prayed something very specific. Lord, if you would just somehow whisper to me that you're still there and that I'm your son and all of this is for a good purpose, I think I can endure anything. Just whisper to me that I'm your son. Well, about 9.30 that night, I received a phone call from the new worship pastor at the church. He told me, the elder who was scheduled to read the sermon text the next morning was in the ER with sudden illness, and he asked me if I would be willing to step in and read. I wanted to say, no, absolutely not. But I, and I wondered why he hadn't called some other elder. I wasn't one. I had, uh, but having just joined the staff, this pastor knew nothing about my spiritual crisis, and I wasn't going to try and explain it to him. Feeling a bit forced into it, I agreed. About an hour later, as I got into bed, I opened my Bible to Hebrews 12, 3-11, the text I would read the next morning. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He says, I sat in bed, stunned, remembering my living room prayer. And as suddenly as the eclipse had come, light now dawned. And though it would take a long time for my weakened soul to fully recover, The night was over. I read the scripture the next morning before the pastor preached with a heart full of trembling awe. I write this article as a memorial stone 20 years later. My God answered. He answered when I was disturbed by the idolatry I saw growing in my heart and asked for deliverance. I can't help but think of the hymn we sang. I asked the Lord that I might grow. And his answer came not as I expected. Instead of delivering me at once, he made me feel the evil of my heart. He says, I saw growing in my heart and asked for deliverance. And he answered me when I asked that he not allow me to lose my faith altogether. He answered by staying imperceptibly near when I feared he was gone forever. And he answered with light when the time was right. For the past 20 years, I have been feeding off the peaceful fruit resulting from the fatherly, loving discipline of the Lord. I claim in no way to to perfectly value death as gain as with Paul. I'm pressing on to a greater realization of that. But I can say this, 
that dark night of hopelessness revealed to me, like nothing else ever has, that God in Christ is the joy in all the true, pure joys that exist. He is the source and fullness of all things, and without him, all joys, all loves, all pursuits are hollow and meaningless. So I bless the Lord for this gift of discipline, and it has emboldened me all the more to pray whatever it takes, Lord. For I've learned repeatedly that the joy and hope he offers are worth whatever it takes to receive them. If you find yourself in a spiritual dark night, trust him. Wait for him. Ask him. Throw yourself on the living room floor if you must. Our God answers. Amen. Let's pray.